I'm Chuck Norris, and I approve this game. Between the time when gamers played with miniatures and chainmail, and the rise of the Wizards of the Coast, there was an age of advanced role-playing undreamed of. And onto the Skygats, destined to bear the jeweled crown of TSR upon a troubled brow. It was given to teach us all how to roll for initiative. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get ready to rumble! You are listening to the Roll for Initiative podcast. This is volume number three, issue number 126. This week we'll be doing letters to the editor. Part three. Part three. I'm DM Vince, sitting with DM Matt. Hello, everyone. DM Nick. Hello. And uh, we're welcoming DM Chad along the cast permanently now. Hey there. Chad has been upgraded from GM to DM now, officially. New and improved. That's yes, right. you're no longer an NPC either. Yeah. No, that was only reserved for Jason, so. Oh, okay. That's right. <laughs> Can I be That's... a wandering monster? Oh, uh, you could be if you'd really like to be. Yes, you get to be a gelatinous So uh, It's a bit too random for me. Yeah. No, oh, you get to be a gelatinous cube. You can work your way up from there. Uh, quicker picker-upper. Yes. <laughs> I've never heard of a gelatinous cube put that way before. Yes. But that's good. <laughs> You're soaking in it. <laughs> Between that and a rust monster, you can clean anything. That's true. So I can put. So I got that going for me. Okay, let me rope everybody back in now. Come on, guys. Come back to the show. <laughs> Uh, so Matt, what happened last week? You were uh, hosting a tournament or refereeing? Uh, I was at the Cincinnati Comic Expo. I was actually working the booth for uh, Illuminati Games uh, in Westchester, Ohio. They had a booth there, and they were also running the gaming area. So I was helping out in the booth, and then also running some Hero Click tournaments there. So uh, pretty much most of my convention consisted just staying in a very small area. Um, so I actually didn't really get to see much of the Comic Con. That sucks. Uh, yeah. Other than I did uh, wander out long enough to get Billy Boyd's autograph for a friend whose birthday it was that wasn't able to actually attend. Oh. So. That's cool. Yeah. So I got to meet Pippin. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> other than that, yeah. Did sure. you get any good comics? Uh, no. I actually got to do zero shopping there. I was pretty oh. much working the booth the entire time. He was a working girl. You yep. was a booth babe. Yep, but hey, it, I get I work their booth. They give me free product, so it works. Yeah. Been there, done that. Uh, Nick yeah. does that on a daily basis. So no, actually, I've done I that wanted before. to go there and do that, but I I wasn't able to go. Oh, sad, yes. sad panda face. It happens. Yeah. Yes. Unhappy. Mm-hmm. Unhappy. <laughs> so we got a lot of emails and a lot of voicemail that we haven't gone through in a while. And so we're going to go through the mailbag. Yeah, a lot of people have been like, what about my email? What about my voicemail? So I said, <laughs> the last couple of shows, we skipped it entirely. I was just like, man, let's just do the shows. And uh, Matt wasn't around, so I just was like, I'm in control. Right. So You're like, screw segments. We'll just Nine do one show. <laughs> exactly. Screw segments. Let's just make Matt's job even harder. Yeah, or, or simpler. <laughs> 
But I do want to point out a new feature since the new operating system did drop on the iPhone, the iOS 7. Yeah. That now you can uh, put a, a subscription together for your favorite podcast and just hit one button and downloads all the things whenever they have new shows. Nifty. Mm. It was basically listen to all the Wild Games Productions podcasts in one shot. That's well, a place- but surely something like that must cost a hundred dollars. Not even. Fifty dollars? No. Twenty-five dollars. Three payments of seven nine ninety-five. I'm kidding. <laughs> And if I order now, will I get any steak knives? <laughs> no, no steak knives. You'll get Matt one day for free. Uh, really? Right. Can I return it? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, I like the steak knives, please. The wooden sword from Hidden Shrine of Tomoachan, which is plus six against gas spores. Yes. <laughs> no, actually, it's a free free thing, and uh, it works really good. I've been listening to all the shows. You could pretty much they set them up in the playlist for you, and you're good to go. Hmm. Nice. But the chaptering is not there, and people keep asking about chaptering. That is dead and gone. Yes. Go complain to Tim Cook. Get If you can complain to him enough and he puts chaptering back, then we'll talk. Yeah, so to quote Microsoft, hashtag deal with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now I just got fired. Oh, darn. <laughs> fired me because I said that to all the fans. Hashtag deal with it. Anyways, let's jump right into the voicemails, 570-865-4210, the hotline, where no one has been standing by. Just We just left an old audio cassette tape recorder there to take messages. Yeah, we had a gelatinous cube fall asleep, sitting at the phone, see? The cubes fall asleep? Yeah, well. I did my best. <laughs> <laughs> Not you, Chad. <laughs> All right, oh, first The voice. other one. Oh. Yes, the gelatinous cube named Chad. I love it. <laughs> It's a very personal key. Yeah, okay, let's go to the first verse. Oh. Hey, RFI, uh, this is DM Angelo from uh, Los Angeles. Um, I got a quick question from you for you guys. Uh, I just ran a, a, a game last week, well, actually two games at, uh, last week at our local convention, and uh, uh, at the end of the both uh, um, games, the, the big bad guy at the end of the game was a, a um, adult black dragon. And uh, my question to you guys is, how would you guys beef up a, a – um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a black dragon, but just a, uh, an, an adult dragon in general for a – you know, for the, the standard uh, AD&D um, – party size of six to eight players. Um, this, for instance, uh, th- this one I was, I was running um, the adventure for four to seven um, uh, levels, uh, six to eight players. And uh, it seemed like the, uh, the, the party had a fairly easy time getting through um, this dragon both times. The first set of part of, uh, adventurers, uh, all but two survived. Um, but the second set of adventures, everybody made it out alive. And I, I just, um, one way that I, I, uh, uh, beef up dragons is when you, when you, uh, get face to face with one, I, I give them a tail flight, uh, which is, which can be pretty brutal and hit, hit several opponents. But I'd like to hear how you guys, 
uh, beef dragons up in general, um, all over the board. Any kind of suggestions would be, be awesome, and I, I love to hear from you guys. And, and uh, I like to hear how different GMs uh, handle situations like that. But anyways, uh, appreciate everything you guys are doing. Keep up the good work. Uh, especially love that last uh, last show that you guys did with, with Luke asking the questions. Uh, uh, I was that was pretty that was pretty hot. I love I love that uh, love that last show you guys did. Anyways, thanks a lot. Keep up the good work and uh, take care, everybody. Bye bye. Okay, anyone want to feel that one? Oh yeah, I got this one. Go ahead, Nick. Um, actually, there's a good article in dragon magazine back in issue 50 of june of 1981 you can also find it in the best of dragon volume three it's called self-defense for dragons giving them a fighting chance by a guy by the name of gregory rin and uh basically what he does Mm -hmm. is depending on the um age of the dragon either small average or huge size uh he gives them basically extra attacks um Size their two claws and a bite. Um, he, you know, if it's uh, depending on the average, um, on the age, excuse me, uh, a smaller dragon is obviously going to do less damage uh, with its claw and bite attacks. Same thing when it's average or huge, it goes up incrementally. But he also gives uh, dragons like uh, wing buffets. So two wing buffet attacks. Uh, Maybe also uh, you can add in two wing claws on the wing, uh, you know, uh, and a foot foot stomp, and a tail lash attack, and um, the tail lash attack he gives different types of tails. Maybe these dragons would have are they? Is it a plated tail? It's covered with armor plates. Does it have a spikes on the end? Does it have like a a, a spade type? And on the tail, is it a whiplash, kind of just like a, a like a whiplash type of tail, or is it like a constrictor snake? It'll r- try to wrap you up and constrict. So, like for example, he gives for uh, for the uh, a plated type tail. A small dragon have uh, one to eight points of damage. Average size two to sixteen points, and huge would be 3 to 24. So um, some of this damage is pretty nasty. So you're getting extra attacks with these dragons. Um, so for so if you want to add in these other things like the wing buffets, the claws, the foot stomp, and the tail lash, basically you could give a dragon uh, 3, 5, 7 attacks around. So... That's one yeah, way of you know doing what? it. Uh, Nick, you read my mind because, I mean, that's exactly – that was an article I, act, I think I, I, I brought up a couple of weeks ago uh, when we were talking about uh, the Rolaids Dragon Supplement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's a really great article. And, you know, one of the things that they talked about was combining the Dragon's Breath Weapon with their Wing Buffet. You know, yeah. so you could have the a red dragon create a blazing inferno, and then like, you know, he uses his his, his breath weapon, and then he uses wing buffets to blade to fan it into mm-hmm. 
an area wide inferno almost or, become like a fireball kind of effect exactly and now it's no longer you know and he's immune to it right but it's no longer where he's looking it's everywhere around him as it catches fire uh with white dragons you know they can they can shatter ice and 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 use their wings to mm-hmm. throw shrapnel uh I was just dragons dust how storms. you could do that with other breath weapons you know like the 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 flapping of the wings like for a green dragon it uses his breath weapon maybe fan out the 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 chlorine gas in a wider area exactly might exactly. do less damage but it's going to cover a larger area mm-hmm. maybe you can even do something like that with a black dragon it comes black out. dragons could use their mass if they're in the water to to yeah. capsize boats to create waves it's true uh, which would spread their acid further yeah or you can you know, like the acid when he uh, gives the breath weapon using the the wings flapping, maybe it sprays it out more in more of a fanning effect. Exactly. Maybe, le- I- maybe you'll maybe you'd have the range or something like that, half the range, but it it uh, covers a wider area or something like that. So exactly a play, wider play area. The dragon smartly. Yeah, and you know, and another thing he talks about is is take a look at the monster manual and refer to that as the typical you know, smaller size dragon and then go up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so dragons do exponentially more damage than what's listed in the DMG as they right. become older. Right. I do also know that there is something in, if you look at the first edition AD&D version of the Forgotten Realms box set, there is a section in there. It's like just a couple of pages maybe on dragons in the Forgotten Realms and how those how those dragons are beefed up, and uh, I don't remember the specifics, but um, if I remember correctly, one of the thing one thing I do remember is about their breath weapons. They could do it more than three times a day. They can split up the 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 damage on their on their breath weapon, so they could do less than one time more than another. However, they want to do it. And uh, but that's another real good way of looking at it. If you can't find the Dragon Magazine article, if you could get the, if you have the Forgotten Realms box set for first edition, you can refer to that too. And also, just remember playing dragons smartly, you know. Yeah. Oh, exactly. And don't forget the fact that if it's an older dragon, it's probably a spellcaster, and it probably has minions. Right. And also remember. Dragons will also use the terrain to their advantage as well. Their lairs, they will craft their lair to suit their needs. To So perhaps they'll have some defenses built into their lair. Say you're coming upon a blue dragon. Perhaps the first thing you have to walk through when you get into his lair is a giant pool of water. So you're sitting there standing in this water when he blasts his breath weapon at the pool of water. So you get a nice little lightning shock. Mm, there you go. So just think of it in not necessarily even cranking up the stats of the dragon or giving them more attacks or whatever. You can play them by the book if you basically uh, think through their lair and everything they can use in their lair to their advantage. Like, say, their horde. They'll start, If things start going bad, they'll start using those magic weapons or magic items in their horde. So, oh, yeah. exactly. Right. They they have yeah. lo- lots of stuff. They will use it all depending on the threat. 
I, would... Matt, I believe it was you. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I believe Matt, didn't you mention one time? I really like this. Uh, you were saying, what if a white dragon encases its treasure in ice? Right. <laughs> yeah. Just, just imagine like it's all okay. So yeah, all this treasure's there. It's now encased of ice. Yeah. So you're, if you want to get to it, you now have to chip it out for now. Or perhaps you, if, for your like black dragons and their acid, they like have, you have to go through like a giant vat of acid and all of the uh, magic items are actually stored underneath it since the acid itself wouldn't harm them. Mm-hmm. What about a white dragon that uh, happens to put, I don't know, something to the dimensions of a moat around its treasure with a thin layer of snow over it, which is really covering very narrow ice, and there's a deep crevasse under it. Yes, exactly. Yeah, so use the terrain. Yep, and who's to say those dragons couldn't use some of those magic items? You know, put a couple uh, rings on their wing claws, why not? Let them use a staff like a wand. Sure. Right. There we go. And knowing's half the battle. G.I. Joe. Yo, Joe. Yo, Joe, <laughs> Nick. Get it right. What? That's one to grow on. <laughs> Next voice we all up coming up. Hi, DM, Nick, Vince, and Matt. This is Jeff from uh, Nick's Home Group. And I uh, really wanted to give a little shout-out for the show here. I started listening to it in Afghanistan. Um two years ago now and I've only and I've really started listening even more now that I realized I can download straight from your website right onto my droid and listen to it with the stock apps um, what I really called about though is Dragonlance Adventures you guys have done some, a couple of reviews on this both when you had Tracy Hickman and a little bit when you had Margaret Weiss online while it was a nice look at the product, most of the show, as required, kind of what ended up being the story behind the story, which was great to hear. Love hearing interviews with those two. Would love to hear more. But the product itself, I believe, deserves more attention. There's so much more in it for both players and GMs. Um, just looking at the, uh, the Knights of Salamnia and their rather unique advancement process, the Wizards of High Sorcery, and the incredible amount of variation in their power levels, even as they advance in level. Um, the different races, specifically Minotaurs as a player character race, one of my absolute favorite groups of monsters, the Draconians, and some of the magic items ending with the probably one of the most disgusting uh, artifact-type weapons out there, the Amulet Terrace. My question for you guys is, have you ever considered re-reviewing the product in a more detailed manner? Thanks for your time. To answer your question, no. Next question. <laughs> uh, I thought we did. I thought we did like a quite a bit of show time on Dragonlance. We, were, we did. Did we not, Matt? Or? Um, well, we did 
I can I th- we've touched on a, the Dragonlance books when we've talked about other various topics as well. So that's why to us it seems like we've covered a lot of Dragonlance because it's not necessarily in specific Dragonlance shows. Like when we talked about knights, that's when we talked about the Knights of Salomnia. Um, then we had the Dragonlance Adventure Show where we had Tracy Hickman on and we talked about dragon armor, alignment tracking, gnome device yeah. creation. I mean, so... It was like kind of the background about the book, how it kind of came to be on that one a lot, too. Right. Um, Although, you know, I always enjoyed... Uh, I always liked the way that, that they treated the elven relations between the different elven cl- uh, clans. You know, it, it was you could translate into Greyhawk with this is how high elves are treated by gray elves. I don't know. That might be an interesting area to get into. Hmm. Well, well I, got, I don't know. We'll take a look at it, I suppose. Had to dig out the book and uh, go back and take a look at it. We'll see what we can do. Yeah, I, I know it's a first edition book. I remember that much, so. <laughs> Good, Nick. I'm glad you're, you're on top. Yeah, well, obviously... Obviously, Jeff there, who is from my gaming group, yeah, is a big fan of Dragonlance. So, <laughs> what can I say? Well, it's a really cool world. I mean, it really is. I had an opportunity to interview Margaret Weiss once. Uh, we were going to use it when uh, for the Dead Game Society, but we never ended up doing that. But it was interesting to talk to her about, you know, the how the whole genesis of the thing. But they really do hit a. He's right. They hit a lot of very interesting ideas. Uh, my only, you know, I never really did a lot of Dragonlance. Uh, it, it just seemed a little scripted to me, but the world itself is very fascinating. Yeah, I have to agree on that point. Well, then we'll have to revisit it in another show in the future, then. I just guess so. Just for your buddy, Nick. Oh, thanks. You're welcome. Because we're, a, we, because our show cares. <laughs> Not really, but anyway. Yeah, well, we, well we as feign, far as you know, it does. We feign being, uh, you know, we feign we care very well. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's go to our last voicemail tonight. Hello, Welfare Initiative. This is Angelic Doctor on the forums. Every now and again, you'll talk about another system entirely, and I would like to request that you speak to Gamma World, a system that I think has not gotten the attention I think it richly deserves. So if you would spend a few moments talking about Gamma World, I'd greatly appreciate that. And also, perhaps talk about how it might intersect with Advanced Dungeons and Dragons. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Oh, not a problem. Angelic Doctor. I, I, the first time I've ever heard his voice, I always talked to him for all these years. I didn't know he sounded like Mr. Wizard. Wasn't <laughs> <laughs> he? That's cool. He sounds well, like Well, Timmy. Yeah, he's like, it's the wizard from the old Nickelodeon show. That's awesome. I don't miss Mr. Wizard. Yeah, Gamma World. Uh, I don't, I've never really played Gamma World. I played Mutant Future, but not Gamma World. Chad, you're the Gamma World expert here, really. Yeah, I'd love to jump in on this one. Uh, when I was still in high school, actually, we did a, uh, using the DMG crossover rules, uh, we did a D- Advanced Dungeons & Dragons first edition crossover with Gamma World, uh, it involved our party sees the strange flying, I don't know, pedestal uh, mm-hmm. land and these metallic looking humans 
get out and we ended up having to battle with them and we were fairly high level at that time and we were getting our keisters handed to us we're firing high level spells wielding pretty good weapons and they're using black ray guns mm-hmm. to deadly effect it was a blast though it was really fun and gamma world is one of those games that i just don't think gets enough notice it's a it's just a really fun game i was i think i was mentioning to you guys earlier there's so much you can do with gamma world if you like zombies I mean, post-apocalyptic, anything like that, you can throw it in there. And there's, uh, I know one GM who's an excellent GM, uh, he runs a Thundar the Barbarian uh, game at GaryCon every year. I think he runs it at Gen Con, and it does great. Demon dogs. Demon dogs. Lords of Light. Have the Savage World blog. Mm -hmm. That is it. Yeah, I thought so. He is, yeah, I love his stuff. He's a good guy. It's very Lords good. Lords of Light. <laughs> it's just such a versatile game, you know. You could do just about any near future genre with it. Yeah. You could do Road Warrior. You could do Thundar. You could do... E-Man. Oh. You could probably even, if you had a technologically advanced enough area, which, you know, you're the GM, you can make the rules as far as that goes. You could even do something like cyberpunk, I suppose, to a degree. How about Thundercats? Uh, yeah, you could actually, yeah. because they yeah, do have do. mutated animals. Yeah, yep. mutated animals, and they have like vehicle motorized vehicles and all that. So yeah, yeah, very it's much a, so. Gamma World is very Gonzo in that, very over the top. I mean, mm-hmm. well, there was that one, uh, two series of modules, the anomalous subsurface environment. I mean. That's about as close to Gamma World as you can get without using the Gamma World rules. So, and that could probably easily port into there as well. I mean, and you got the AD and D DMs guide with the uh, with the conversion between the two. So, which version of Gamma World would you suggest our listeners try to find if they wanted to play, Chad? I'd probably say third. Third, okay. Hmm. But uh, you know what's interesting. I always thought that they took it straight from Gamma World. If you watch the beginning of Terminator and remember the big tracked tank-like thing that's mm-hmm. rolling and blasting everybody, mm-hmm. I mean, it's almost, it, it, to me, it was a death machine. Yeah. So cool. that's another area you could do with Gamma World. Me, I would go with either first or second edition. Oh, really? Why Gamma is that? World. I Well, that's the ones I'm familiar with. I stopped playing Gamma World after third because I, I believe at third edition they changed kind of the rule set a bit. Oh, okay. They did so, a little bit, yeah. And uh, I like first and second edition, too. I know first uh, and second edition Gamma World was compatible with AD&D, and so it was, at the time, it was something I was, like, I was familiar with, I was comfortable with. So, um, yeah, that's that's just me. Okay. Yeah, I kind of bounce around with the editions. I've run first edition at Gary Con. I've run third edition. I don't know if I've run second edition. Hmm. Really, wasn't much difference between the first and second edition rules, from what I understand. Though not a I think, huge. That not that I've seen. Yeah, I. And now, as far as adventures, I do have 
was it the City of Gold, which is kind of like Called a sand, Legion uh, of Gold. Legion of Gold, excuse me, yeah. Uh, which is kind of a sandbox kind of adventure. It's kind of like Gamma World's version of Secret of Bone Hill in a way. Mm-hmm. And then my favorite, The Famine in Fargo, which is a really fun adventure. Oh, has mutant chickens familiar, in it. I don't it. think I've read it. It's got mutant chickens in it. Clock, 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 clock. How about the D20 setting for Gamma World? You guys ever played that at all? or not the I one, have played that one. Not the one for 4th edition, the one that I guess that came out right as the uh, open gaming license exploded. I heard it was okay, but then again, I've also seen a lot of those on, like, buy three, get five free at conventions. Yeah, I... I... <laughs> The, my local half price books has some of those ga- uh, third edition Gamma World D twenty uh, Gamma World books. So, I, yeah, I don't think it'd be too difficult to pick it up. But I've actually never played any Gamma World, so I know next to nothing about it. Other than the fourth edition version required you to buy trading cards. Oh boy! Yes. Looking on Amazon right now. Gamma World, the second edition box set, goes for $272 brand new. What? Yeah. Inconceivable. The third edition rules that Chad was talking about was $99 new. Four four bucks used. So. Duh, get them used, yeah. <laughs> you know what? I actually have to correct myself. I was thinking of second edition when I said third. Oh, okay. Yeah, you know what? Sorry about that. I haven't looked at my Gamma World. Oh, jeez. Now we got to start the show all over again. Oops. <laughs> the first. I'm edi- a big enough man to admit it. Okay, good. <laughs> the first edition box set, four hundred and thirty-six dollars. Wow. Or you could buy a collectible for one hundred twenty-four, which I would think would be more than new, but I guess. Yeah. I don't get I that. I just always love that first edition picture, though. The guys look like they have flamethrowers and they're moving mm-hmm. into the city. Yeah, that is a cool thing. And you know what? That box set has a great map of North America. It's awesome. Yeah, I always think of Pittsburgh. Yeah. I don't know. That's what I always think of. Cool. So we'll have to do a future episode on Gamma World. Yeah. Why not? Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Let's get into some emails. RFISTAFF at gmail.com. The first email... Comes in from Brian Scott and it says, okay, so I'm new to the podcast, been listening to the archives every day to catch up. However, I really wanted to know about know about something that nobody really seems to be able to give me details on. Where do I go to find out exactly what happened inside the company during Lorraine Williams era? Please forgive me if I've missed this episode, missed the episode on this one. The reason I ask is I've always been curious about the culture inside TSR and what changes happened in the transitions. I get parts and I get parts and stories, but never the entire picture. I feel something similar happened at White Wolf and other companies, and as always, it is a topic that nobody seems comfortable talking about with me. I've always felt there was some kind of major culture shift early on. The communicate the community was directly writing and influencing the materials. Somewhere this seemed to diminish, and it is a maybe that should be pattern, maybe pattern repeated through much of the industry. P.S. Playing at the World is in the mail, but I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Thanks, Brian. Did Lorraine Williams take over White Wolf? <laughs> no. 
<laughs> no, actually, I yeah, wasn't she part ran of the through the gaming so. industry like Godzilla, destroying companies as she went through. Oh, CCP like too. Mecha Streisand. Mecha Streisand. Mecha Lorraine Williams. <laughs> no, CCP Publishing took over uh, yeah. White Wolf when the people that made uh, Eve Online. No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Know. You know what? I wasn't part of the culture inside either at that time. So to be honest, I couldn't couldn't say. You'd have I, to ask a TSR employee. Actually, I do have some insight on this. I, uh, I've i talked to various people about this um, yeah, topic, course. and this is what, from what I understand, when the Lorraine Williams era came in, dun, dun, dun. which was circa 1985, 86, right around there when, uh, when Gary Gygax left. Now, anybody who doesn't know, Lorraine Williams was the, I guess, the heir to the Buck Rogers um, dynasty of and the comic 20th, books and stuff. What's oh, that? And the 25th century. Yes. Right. <laughs> Duck and, Dodgers. But oh, Buck you know, Rogers. I, I know Flint Dilly, her brother. He's a really great guy. I, I just don't know Lorraine yeah. Williams, yeah. so I'm not going to. But really she came into this. She, you know, I with the whole thing with the Bloom brothers and how they started to, you know, push out Gary that got her in because she had money. And um, it was made quite apparent that once she got in there, she did not have a very high regard for gamers in general. You can't actually say that. From what, I, from what I've heard? You can't actually say that because I've heard do the complete opposite of that. That, that was untrue. And oh, really? She was yeah. much for gamers. She was just more focused on the Buck Rogers right. thing. That's all. Yeah, I know that. The, one of the things that she did do was like, yeah, they did that Buck Rogers game that came out later on in the late 80s. But um, I think it was just trying, they were trying to generate uh, enough income to get out of the the financial slump that they were in. Yeah, let's just churn out books. Yeah, basically that's what happened. So, you know, they had, when she came in, Two years later, you got Forgotten Realms. You got, well, and before that, I think within a year, there was Dragonlance as a, as a campaign setting. Then they started doing all the books for, for Dragonlance. And then you had, um, let's see, and then you had Forgotten Realms again, all the novels there. And, and um, that's from what I, that's from what I know from, well, you know, I mean, to be fair, a lot of those games and, and additions you just mentioned are are fairly well beloved by a lot of people. There are a lot of Dragonlance fans, a lot of Forgotten. I'm not a huge Forgotten Realms fan. I like Greyhawks, but edition, Forgotten Realms for it turned in the second edition and that whole Avatar. Jazz. Right? Yeah, when they came out with that first box set, the second the the first box set came out in '87. That was for first edition AD and D. Right, and that had the I'm I'm just that had the picture of the look like orcs on horses riding after yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. like that. I thought it was pretty mm-hmm. detailed. Mm-hmm. But um, I, 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 as far as like, I guess it was she was trying to run it as a business, you right. know. And then it was during the early '90s that when Magic the Gathering became a hit. They decided we're going to get into that collectible realm as well with Dragon Dice and Spellfire. Yeah, that whole expansion failed really, really bad because they were 
they made a lot. They pushed it out through mass market stores through Random House, and it didn't really catch on. Yeah, I think that was one of the things that really hurt them later on is when they lost their deal with Random House. Right, and then they also at the same time had a bunch of hard, hardback uh, novels come out that didn't sell well either. Yeah. So that strained their relationship with Random House, which hurts their distribution. So they ended up losing a lot of money um, because uh, with Random House, they had a a number of returns on Dragon Dice and these unsold novels uh, resulted in a fee to TSR of several million dollars. Mm-hmm. So it was during that period, and at which point they had no cash on hand to pay their uh, basically their logistics people, the people that printed their books and warehoused their books and all of that. So they refused to work. Yeah. We've also heard from, like, I know we've had, like, a few guests on that were in through that era, too, that it was basically, in general, there was that shotgun effect of product that kind of went out there for a number of years because they wanted to try to generate that income, but they're... It was, I guess, the scatter. It was too much. It was too scattered. I don't know. It, well, it, do you think it's a partly TSR was always ahead of the pack for a long time, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of original gaming? And, you know, you mentioned that they wanted to cash in on the on the magic craze, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. then that's kind of a switching of gears for them instead of leading the pack they tried to catch on to another fire that was already going. Right. I don't I don't know if that was wise. Right. No. And just think and also just think of the nineties, the mid to late nineties in the world of RPGs. What was really new and innovative at the time? Uh the stuff White Wolf was doing? Yeah, Vampire. I mean which I outs- never got into it all. Yeah, I never did either, but outside of that it was kind of a dark age for RPGs, the 90s. The only thing yeah, that was, I actually liked Vampire, but I didn't – I liked it, it when it first came never out. appealed to me at all. I always thought it had to be played as a LARP. I never realized, hey, you could just play this as a tabletop game, so I never bothered. I would you – know, around that time also, it was – yeah, the whole kind of angsty, cyberpunkish <laughs> thing was really big. He had cyberpunk. He had Shadowrun. Um, but but Shadowrun was pr- around years prior to that. Yeah, but well, Cyberpunk was around years prior to Shadowrun, right? Yeah. So I hate I, it when people put them in the same lumping. By the way, I'm a huge Cyberpunk yeah. fan. Yeah, uh, yeah. For whatever reason, it just seemed that in the '90s there was no innovation. Really, Not really. It, everything but, we got st- uh, the RPG realm just got stagnant. Well, the computers, the computer game industry really started to take hold because the you know computers started to get better in and by 1995 you have windows 95 graphics were getting better for computers hence the games were getting better on computers and then you know that was really starting out to overtake your pencil and paper rpgs well you know i'll go even kind of more out out there i guess in theory but compare the music too Right, the music got more angsty. The games got more angsty yeah. in the nineties. Yeah, it, it, they follow kind of the same pattern. Right. Yeah. Hence, why uh, a game like Vampire caught on. It mm-hmm. appealed to that type of cultural shift. Mm-hmm. Don't forget, we had West End Games churning out tons of games as well. Right. Oh, true. 
right. licensing every popular movie they jumped on and made an RPG for at the time. And for quite some time through the 90s, especially through the mid-90s, Call of Cthulhu was very popular. I mean, especially when the Delta Green stuff came out. Oh, oh my Delta, gosh. Well, I'm actually friends with John Tynes, who, who wrote that. And, and, no and, kidding. Yeah, we went to that. college together. We were part of the same gaming club in college. Lucky. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, Call of Cthulhu's been around now. That's It, it, it was around in the 80s, too. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah, but, I mean, it really kind of came into its own. Right. And Delta Green was was really Pagan Publishing's attempt. I always call it aliens if Call of Cthulhu was alien. Yeah. It or, was the first time you got to actually kind of fight back. And I say kind of because you still yeah, ended up running. Like X-Files written into the game in a way. That's how Which I is think. another good good topic that you just brought up because you're right. X-Files was out at that time. Conspiracy yep. was huge. Yep. So there was a lot of stuff. Going against TSR at the time. So. so, yeah, it makes you wonder, was TSR at a point creatively, you know, where they, they the same thing, you know, happened when uh, when grunge came into the scene in the 90s. A lot of these yeah. big bands from the 80s literally had no idea how to keep up. They, they didn't know that. That's not where they came from. Yeah. I mean, look, all of a sudden, the well, groups like Poison are like. Not in style anymore. <laughs> hey. I like poison. <laughs> Open up and say ah. Ah. <laughs> okay, so thanks, Brian. We don't really have anything to really tell you about that. And as far as White Wolf shift, I don't really think there was anything similar that happened to White Wolf. It was just CCP. They pretty much took a company that was going under and, and just revamped it is what they did. Right. They basically just streamlined and reorganized to make it to where it could still exist. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's all it really did. I could tell you when I went to a wife full party at Gen Con in 2004, it was awesome. Yep. They do know how to throw a party. <laughs> they do know how to throw a party. Last, That's right. Last time I remember them being at Gen Con, they had a booth that was nothing but plugging their giant masquerade yeah. down in uh, New Orleans. Yeah. Yeah, I never got invited to the White Wolf party. Oh, you didn't? Yeah. And a bear is sad. I never did either. I did. I don't know. I never really hung out that much around their booths. Yeah, I I never tried either. And for some reason, they never came to my hotel room to give me the invitation. So I don't know what that was about. (laughs) Guess you were on the elite lit. No, I'm just kidding. No, I don't know. White Wolf just they revamped like they just revamped and decided to keep them going. Now they have Onyx Publishing under White Wolf, which is a third chain company, I guess. Well, I guess what CCP White Wolf doing business now is Onyx Publishing. I don't understand that, but they're bringing well, they, were, they redid the entire game, didn't they? Yeah. I don't know much about Vampire the uh, Requiem. I can't pronounce it even, but uh, I mean, I supposedly they just rebooted the whole game. They did. They did the new world of darkness and what the vampires are sparkly now. No, (laughs) I do get to take credit for one thing about white wolf history though. My friend Mark and I, who did the darker days podcast way back when it was the original, uh, we got the, we coined the phrase classic world of darkness for white wolf when they took on to that. So I got, I coined the phrase. So Uh, uh. give that man a cookie. Yum, yum, yum. Cookie, cookie, good food. 
Yeah, I don't know. 1d4 hit points. Oh. <laughs> Next email comes from Shane. It says, Vince Nicky. Shane, come home. Shane. I'm going to run I6 on Roy- and for Ravenloft in October. Halloween team game. Can't wait. Can't find anything about the appropriate method to start a multi-class character above first level. As I look through the required XP for level 5, each class is different. It doesn't seem fair to give multi-class characters to 5th level in all classes. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. Shame. I don't play with those rules. Nick, I don't think you do either, right? Um, Actually, there is something in the DMG, Appendix P. Yeah, I, was, I thought it was N. I was thinking of N for some reason. Yeah, creating a party spur of the moment. Uh, in the section says, for levels, multi now, I've read through this a few times, and I'm still trying to get through the wording. So, multi-class races are best handling by, now hold on your horses, are handled by adding one per level, or it's a, multi-class races are best handled by adding one level per profession to the level generated, and then dividing the total by the number of classes involved, counting all fractions as whole numbers. Yeah. Does that make any sense to anybody? No. Not much. I mean, when I've done it before, I simply say, I don't really go based on level per se. I I go based on XP. I I give a a stated amount of XP for all the characters to work with to make their character. And what that means is if you want to play, say I give out... 18,001 XP. Well, the fighters, clerics, and thieves are going to begin the game at fifth level. The paladin, ranger, and magic user, they're going to be fourth level. And the half elven, fighter, and magic user thief, he divides that starting XP by three and he begins at three, three, four, respectively. Mm-hmm. Or the best way to do it. Yeah, that's how I would do it. Yeah, and you know, and you also have to note. Even though the fighter and the thief are both beginning at fifth level, the thief at that amount of XP, he's close to leveling to sixth. The fighter really has only just become fifth. And and it works because in a straight out fight, the fighter is generally going to be a tougher adversary. So the thief generally levels faster. So I'm trying to think of maybe in this question like if he wanted to generate a fifth level i don't know like let's say a fifth level cleric magic user okay just for sake of argument so it's like an elf cleric magic user um so fifth level so you have two so you add one level per profession level generated okay so if we're gonna say he's fifth so it'll be six six right so, and then dividing the total of the number of the classes involved. So, counting all fractions down. So, there's two classes. So, I guess he would actually be a 3-3 magic user cleric, right? Yeah, that's kind of how I think it sounds like they're doing. Because mm-hmm, you take that total number of classes, two, divide it by the level. Total, I'm sorry, yeah. Then divide the total by the number of classes involved. Okay. So, yeah, I guess it would be, yeah, you'd be at level 3 3 Magic User Cleric. Right. So, I guess that's how you would do it. That sound right? Yeah. And then if you think about just how the math for X, 
if you were to just hand out the flat XP amounts like we were talking about, you would probably in that instance end up with a 3-3 character. Yeah. So, it sounds well, like it's going to be kind of like a one-shot thing anyway, so I didn't think of experience points would be much of an issue. Right, and, and you're right. As far as continuing, if it's a one-shot, obviously continuing to make a importance on gathering XP is not going to be an issue, but it does make for a fairly easy way to come up with multi-class characters on the fly. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, what by that, by their, I mean, I guess by the book system, what would a fighter magic user be instead of well, a you i think you were saying a cleric magic user because well, it'd be if, still if it, three three okay because if you're using xp and saying you're giving out enough to for a fighter to just become fifth level you would have a fourth level fighter third level magic user well then you would have to boost the what the minimum range would be for for whatever because you're not going by they're just going by whatever level they're not going by experience points right right i'm just thinking i mean it almost seems like it's giving i like to do it by xp because if you were to start the game at first level that would essentially be how you would be doing it uh i don't know that's interesting dun 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 but yeah so but I digress. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, use XP or go by the book and just add one to the level you want to generate and divide by two. Those are so. Those are in either way, it's going to be close enough that it's going to be no one. Will, I don't think anyone will complain at the table whether no. or not the you have a four three or a three three. So blah blah. Now let's go on to our next email. And it is from Dave the Moderate. Greetings, RFI staff. A friend's local face-to-face group has kindly offered a seat at their table, which is marvelous. The downside is they play Pathfinder, which I know basically nothing about, but am willing to learn, of course. Their group takes turns hosting games and is open to other games so long as they reach a consensus. So I want to sell them on playing AD&D. Good for you. We, we must spread the game and plug our podcast while you're at it. Yeah. Yes, yes, definitely. Yes. Um, a couple of the group played 2E when they were kids, which appeared to be about a week and a half, judging from their youth. The, re- <laughs> <laughs> the rest have never old schooled. So I have to sell 1E to the group of youngins who cut their teeth on the Watsy version of D&D. Uh. You guys have far more experience with the later revisions than your humble servant who hung up his dice in the early 90s without turning into addition wars and keeping it positive what selling points would you use to convince them to take a chance on rolling back the clock to a simpler grittier game when role playing took precedence over dice rolling and the characters of the player is more important than the player characters which is how i'm thinking of pitching the game by the way many thanks dave the moderate and he's got a ps here more than two-thirds of the way through the back catalog, 60 episodes as of right now, and I just wanted to tell Vince that I have come to truly appreciate your crusty grognardiness. Thank you. I see the show's topics and think, oh, Vince will hate this. And you do! <laughs> I may not agree. After all, secondary skills were written in by Gary opening the door to non-weapon proficiencies in later 1E, but I always enjoy your 
a cerebric commentary. So selling people that have never played AD&D or old school games on this wonderful game. I think, first off, just lure them in with a one shot and walk them through character creation because you'll take like a whole five minutes to do that. Mm-hmm. That'll be a quick sell right there. Right. It'll be simple. You can pitch it as a one shot and let them play. And when you run your one shot. Focus on the strengths of this game, which is letting the players do whatever they want and not have to worry about min-maxing everything. Mm-hmm. Just give them – give the, maybe pull out one of the classic modules to give them – so the, just to show them this is what gaming was like back then. And just kind of pitch it as just like a one-shot. Don't worry about selling them on a camp, uh, multi-session campaign. <laughs> Sell them on – just let's just try it once. Kind of like a drug dealer. You give them the first one free, then they'll be begging for more. <laughs> give them crack and they'll play your game. Yes. No. Give their player characters crack. No, it's and heroin so- is, the ga- is the drug of choice. Oh, now. heroin. Oh, okay. I don't like the syringes and the needles. Yeah, I don't like needles. No. Anyway. <laughs> Anyways, back well, to back to the thing it had. One, what? but yeah, I would say just... Dude, sell, let them talk them into letting you run like a one shot first so that way they can just see how simple and flowing the game gets and how they're not they you don't get bogged down in number crunching in combat um yeah that would be those are really good selling points if you will I mean thinking of his how he's going to talk about rolling back the clock to a simpler grittier game you know that's those Try to make it sound appealing in that regard. You shouldn't, and you shouldn't have to hell it, sell it too hard if you're enthusiastic about it. Right. If you're excited about it, then they should catch on to that. It's saying that it's it's simpler rules. It's a little. It's definitely more open in the in the in the game as far as what rules are needed, and it's more and it's more about the the interaction of the of the players with the DM and each other than, you know, tactical moves on a map, which you don't need. Right. It's nice to have, but you don't need that. Yeah. Yeah. And also, though, be prepared. You may at first need to draw out some of the more uh, character-driven things if they're heavy players of, like, 3.5 or 4E because they're so used to thinking in that tactical min-max manner, when all of a sudden you give them an open world where their choices really aren't constrained like they are in later editions, mm-hmm. they may fall into like an analysis paralysis where they, they have so many choices they don't know what to do. So you might have to do a little hand-holding and just saying, well, you could do this, you could do this, you could do this, throw out some options for them mm-hmm. until they start getting into the flow of – just being creative in their problem solving as opposed to like uh, like in combat in fourth edition. If you're not using like all your encounters, your dailies and whatnot, you're not going to be an effective character. That is not an issue in this game. Yeah. And what's the one thing that we always say? It's rulings, not rules. As long as you're consistent for those things that fall outside of what we say, the normal rules, which is, Really, just combat stuff and saving throws. I mean, let's be real about this. I mean, outside of that, there isn't a whole lot of of rules that you know 
if you miss something, as long as, as long as you're consistent from it, from now on, you know, you're okay. Like, you know, like stuff for aquatic combat or aquatic adventures, for example. Right. Or maybe you have your own set of rules for that and that's okay. If as long as it works within the system and you're consistent with it, go for it. Right. Or the grappling overbearing rules. Yeah. You can use something totally different. Right. Uh, just remember everything in like the DMG and the player's handbook, they're guidelines. It's mm-hmm. just this is how we think the game should be run, but it doesn't have to be ran exactly that way. Mm-hmm. So I would also, when running it, make sure you're moving fast as a DM. Don't get bogged down looking up all the various modifiers. Yeah, that's true. Keep that's the game flowing. It, I, if you don't know the overbearing rules inside or out, don't touch them. There's a lot of modifiers you have to go through and add in to determine to, if you to use them properly. And if you can't do that quickly, don't use them. Yeah, don't use them. Just I don't use them. I don't think I've ever used them. Just for example, I always use just like, oh, if you want to punch a guy, I just say, okay, make it to hit roll. Right. Well, what's my damage? Um, it's just a D3 plus your strength bonus. There. Right. Or you know, something like that. Yeah, you're trying to wrestle with someone. I say roll a d20, add your strength to it, and then I do the same for the uh, NPC. Whoever yeah, gets maybe, highest or one. Maybe it's a dexterity roll. Who knows? Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And one of the things I do at conventions all the time is I I, I seem to always have at least one guy at the table who is not familiar with the early editions, and you really do have to keep the pace going and. If you're going to run a first or second edition game and you want to sell them on it, you really have to keep it moving. You you shouldn't get too bogged down in first edition's grappling rules. They can be really hairy. But, you know, another thing I would try to do is is really sell them on the flexibility of first edition as well as the danger. Assuming, of course, you're, you can judge your own fellow players. Are they the type that enjoy... I don't know, a good uh, peril. If so, you can really sell them on the fact that, you know, you're going to be dealing with level drains. Uh, you're going to be dealing with save or die attacks and, and really hit them on the flexibility because that's one of the biggest things I notice with later edition players is that they get so caught up in the skills and feats that when they come to an earlier edition where those don't exist, they they just become paralyzed when they have you know well okay you come up to a wall what do you do well I don't have the I don't have the skill climb so I guess I'm incapable of climbing you know and as a GM you have to say no you you can try to climb you can try to do anything you want there's you know there's it may not be a huge chance you're not a thief but sure you could try to climb. It's very open-ended, I feel. Hmm. And I'll just say this. I definitely hate this topic. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I agree with what Chad said. Uh, Sell them on the point of there's going to be a game that you're going to be looking around the corner. Every decision you make could kill your character. There's no superheroes in this game. There's no rolling a dice and you're just going to be uh, doing tons of damage. Well, you can do tons of damage, but not like in third or fourth edition when you have all these powers and spells. And yeah, you're not coming out of the gate like Legolas are here, you know. <laughs> and the monsters aren't going to be—they're not going to be rated against your party's level. No, 
Excellent. All right. So I think we covered that one pretty well. Let's uh, move on to the next one here. It says, hi, love your podcast. Can you give advice to a new DM on when characters want to buy an inn and tavern in a small city and what it should cost? Thanks, Alan, a.k.a. the Rabbit Gerbil. <laughs> Ooh, that's a good one. You got anything on that, Chad or Matt? Buying an inn and or tavern in a small Well, city, the first place I, you know, and I was just about that... I, I know that the DMG gives a, a, a lot of information on building castles and hiring people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't know. I'd have to check it again. I don't know if they cover buying buying an inn, yeah. but uh, that's one of those things that, as a GM, you have to know your own game world yeah. and and the economy of it. Uh, I actually did have a, a character. He's probably my first long lasting character and i'm not going to get into one of those hey my character but uh yeah, yeah he bought an inn he, right he, yeah he, he built an inn called the guilty virgin which was my homage to uh the vulgar unicorn but uh-huh. yeah and it, and it became our kind of game base uh in character for a long time after that but I don't know. I think my GM basically had an idea of of how much he thought a gold piece went for. And, you know, uh, it was in a bad part of town. So the the real estate was cheap. And that's another thing, too. You got to you got to consider where are you building it? It, Are you building it in the uh, behind the palace gates or are you building it by the wharf? Right. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned the name. There's there's two. There's two uh, reoccurring names that come up in my game world, so I don't know why. Because someone always asks me, "What's the name of the tavern again?" One of them's either the Dragon's Kneecap, <laughs> or the other one, the Whore's Nipple. <laughs> hey, I'm gonna go to the second one. Yeah. <laughs> so. I actually have quite a lot of experience with this because I had a gaming group that all they wanted to do was buy and build up things and take over the world. So. Like Chad said, you have to know your world and what the economy is like. So uh, I generally just try to get a random number ahead of time because I know they're going to buy that. And then the number they have is usually knocked down because they wind up uh, doing the whole mob style and taking over the place. So (laughs) So the game's involved. I bet they're friends with the Thieves Guild. Oh, yeah. No, actually, the Thieves Guild wound up going under because they wound up killing all the thieves. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, and and the two names... They they come from I don't know if anybody you saw that it was a one shot show that was on long time ago on uh, Adult Swim Network. It was going to be a anime series called Korgoth of Barbaria. You might still be able to find a video out there on YouTube. I highly recommend watching the pilot episode. It's hilarious. They should have made this. It's like it's like Conan the Barbarian in a very it. Very tongue-in-cheek fashion. What about Crod Bandoon? Yes, that too would have been awesome. They that kept that going. It's a good episode. Yeah, good six episodes it was. Yeah. So. So what the price I did was ten thousand gold and based it from there, depending on the size of the city. And generally, my cities are pretty large. So. Yeah, if I had to say, I would probably say in the world that I run, you could buy the Guilty Virgin for I don't know, fifty gold pieces. <laughs> The place is in a really bad part of town, and a gold piece is worth a lot in my world. Oh, there you go. There you have it. I guess, yeah, just, yeah, you're right. 
base it off what your game world is as far as the economy and just kind of wing it. Just you know, yeah. trust your judgment on it. Right, and also judge the uh, coffers of your players as well. If they have yeah. a lot of excess gold, this is a great way to uh, get rid of that. Oh, oh that's yeah. an excellent point, Matt. Because and you don't can forget really all the taxes them. you're going to have to pay on that place. Exactly. Yeah, and wait till the thieves' guild shows up offering protection. Oh, oh yeah. Right. Oh yeah. Right. That's another good way. They're going to want it. their slice. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, or perhaps your players have a few too many magic items. You want yeah. that in? You might have to sell some. Oh yeah, and all yeah, the and various if you skills. store your magic items there, and it's a place that gets frequented by a lot of thieves, you may well, lose them anyway. Just, well, no. If you the store thieves, them there, but... they'll be visited by a lot of thieves if you store them there. <laughs> what are you? Well, talking? don't forget you. You got to get ale. You got to get with the Brewers Guild. Right. You're gonna have. Well, you know, uh, if you're gonna have it in or a tavern maybe you're gonna have to place where you're gonna have to put up people's horses and stuff like that right. i'm sure there's right. a guild that handles what at the local town guard they local... drop by hey oh, sure. we'll yeah. overlook infractions but, and then if you're you still want to adventure as opposed to play uh, ad d the business sim <laughs> then uh you're going to have to hire someone to run it for you and are they a trustworthy fellow maybe they skim some off the top just exactly. Me. That's another good one. Mm. So, yeah. So, yeah, you can use this in all kinds of creative ways just to actually fix your economy. So, yeah. And you can have the party going from this is going to be awesome to, oh, my gosh, how do we unload this? place? Right. Oh, no, we're losing so much money on this. This isn't working at all. <laughs> and next thing you know, they're in debt to a merchant when before mm-hmm. they were rolling in dough. And then they're selling it for 50 gold pieces. Right. <laughs> exactly. Or adventure lightning happens. Okay. All right, no one got that reference. Never mind. Yes. Shall we move on to the next one? We shall. Okay. Um, I think he meant, he wrote, hello, TRI DMs. I think he meant RFI. <laughs> I was wondering if you've seen this video of golden eagles hunting mountain goats. And there's there's a link, and I'm sure we'll put that in the show notes it's very amusing by the way <laughs> i am curious what is your thought about this rather innovative method on how you would use it to make eagles and other flying creatures more of a threat in combat jeff h who also gave the voicemail who's in my gaming group here in ohio so i thought about this one and i'm like hmm should i just you know, I guess I would roll it to hit for the giant eagles or the griffins or whatever's tossing them down. And I don't know if I would, this is where I'm kind of split. Would I factor in falling damage? <laughs> you know, that D six per 10 feet for the oh, creature. Definitely. Oh, I absolutely. I, I may, I may give you a save to see if you can tuck and roll. Do like Here's what damage. I was thinking on that. Like if they're like, you know, giant eagles or, or hippogriffs or griffins or I don't know. Dragons. Or dragons, you know, and they're tossing down, you know, goats or cows and what have you. I was thinking I would do this is whatever height they are, you total up that damage. So let's say, sake of argument, 100 feet. Yeah. You toss them down at the 100 feet. They roll to hit. You roll all that damage for 100 feet 
for the damage that the cow is going to take. For example, dragon tossing down a cow. Okay? I would half that damage, and that's the damage that your character would take. <laughs> so it's 10d6. Say you're, you, you know, the, the cow takes 40 points of damage. You take 20 of that. <laughs> so, yeah. You broke the cow's I, fall. Yeah, basically. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's fair or not, but, you know, that's a lot of cow coming down right. on you at 100 it, feet. That's going to hurt. Yeah, think of it this way. If you were to put a cow in a catapult and hurl it at something, how much damage would it do? A lot. Exactly. Like money, python, and the holy grail. Exactly. So I think having whatever the fall damage is would be perfectly fine. And really, I would probably increase it because I think a cow falling on you from like a height of 10 feet would probably do more than 2d6 damage. So I might even up it, like make a higher base level of damage just because, well, it is a several hundred pound projectile being dropped on you. So, yeah... Yeah, you know, and another place to go look that up would be the Wilderness Survival Guide because, you know, I'm always looking for a reason to use that book. Yeah. But that, I think they cover it. I'm actually kind of skimming through it right now, but I'm pretty sure. I know they cover climbing from high places. Right. Right. And then actually bringing it back to our dragon discussion earlier, this would be a way to make dragons more dangerous. Oh, this would be an excellent way to make dragons more dangerous. They, I mean, give them the grab attack right. and then let them go high and let them drop. Or, or just let them go high, grab, and fly above the rest of the party and be like, you stand down or I'm dropping your buddy. Yeah. Yeah, and there's another way you can use that, actually, is give the dragon, or for that matter, any of the flying creatures already mentioned, griffins, hippogriffs, give them a really good surprise attack because they're swooping down from on high, silent and deadly. Yep. I mean, one minute you're having, you're munching grass on the mountaintop or whatever adventurers do, and the next, you have a griffin right on top of you and moving fast dropping a goat on you dropping a goat on you <laughs> now he doesn't normally eat adventures but when he does he always eats yeah. the best exactly. i'm sitting here on the mountaintop and then whoa what the heck man <laughs> whap <laughs> yeah no that that actually hey good job matt that covers two stones yes or, Two birds. Right. And actually, that'd be another thing you could drop on your players. Stones. Exactly. Large or boulders. Small twigs. Right. Or, or in the, or in the things. case of white dragons, giant balls of ice. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. Ice turds. Oh, my yes. <laughs> You said turds. Icy dragon turds. <laughs> okay. Well, considering we didn't have a question about the bowel movements of dragons, I, we should probably move on to the next email. Moving right along. Thanks, Jeff. Yes. yes. Th- this w- next one is from the admin of the Dallas Old School D&D Players Meetup Group, Jonathan. Oh, he's a good guy. He actually played in one of my games here in Dallas. Oh, cool. Very good guy, Jonathan. Awesome. Yes. DM Vincent Gang, I was just listening to Volume 3, Issue 123, your podcast, in which you were discussing big battle rules. Enjoyable and interesting as always. 
However, I was surprised that you didn't mention that your fellow podcasters over at Save or Die had just done a show on August 3rd, number 76, in which they covered this very topic, this topic very well, in my opinion. Well, then listen to them. Fine. Well, (laughs) and also a little little secret about this show. We're time travelers. So you we are actually traveling when you listen to us, you're actually listening to our past selves. Because, yeah, we're, we normally have like a one or two week backlog from the day we record to the time it's actually released. So probably when we recorded that episode, uh, the number 76 of Saver Die probably wasn't even out. <laughs> so and they just happened to get released near the same time period. So there. So Saver so. Die actually does shows every other week. So they're well behind what we're behind. So right. Yes, if we start talking about how behind the podcast we're in being behind each other, it gets into a giant loop. And at that point, we would need the uh, T-Tor Corporation to uh, actually know what We need a TARDIS. Yes, we would need a TARDIS and a Time Lord Mm. and a Sonic Screwdriver. And I know nothing about Doctor Who. Anyway, moving moving on. Um, (laughs) I would just like to add that for my part, I too like to address battles and controllable snippets. I have no interest in moving from role-playing to wargaming in my D&D campaign, no matter what the system. The idea that you mentioned about having how the players do in a series of snapshots in the battle determine the tide of the overall battle makes sense to me as well, with the players in the courtyard of the castle defending the gate from the ogres trying to break it down. Or defending a town from a unit or two with perhaps a couple of higher level baddies as the main army passes by. However, I would also like to quibble with the idea expressed by the three of you that players will feel railroaded if they can't control the outcome of the battle. Battles in a war setting are not necessarily controllable by a few individuals, even heroic ones, especially if the armies they're facing is much larger than the armies that they are defending. The tactic idea is a good one, but even if the tactics are perfect, I still think they should lose the battle to a clearly superior force if that's what they are facing. A good alternative, perhaps, is to have the players accomplish a mission that turns the tide of the battle off the battlefield, such as several examples that happened at the end of Return of the King with the returning with the Riders of Rohan or the Oathbreakers, for example. Thanks for listening, Jonathan. So... I don't know. It's like, I guess when it comes to me and my game, I like to think my players are like these superhero focal points in the entire universe actually does revolve around them that they're. So that's why I am not overly fond of the concept of having a negative outcome that they have no control over at all. Just my thought. What about the rest of you? Well, I don't know. Um, I just kind of think that uh, I I don't know if I have a really good answer or anything because I'd never really experienced this. Um, I I guess how I could handle it. It really de- it really depends on how the scenario is. I mean, if you're talking about a big battle, I mean, you could have it to where they're kind of manipulating things off the battlefield to help turn the tide of, tide of the the war. Uh, if that's part of the overall story arc, then then, then go with it. Um, I know from a player standpoint, I am somewhat involved in a situation to where 
you know, at least we were and my my friend Jeff his gaming group we were kind of involved in kind of a, a war type situation but we were kind of the focal point of the battle so I don't know I as far as a DM I'm not sure how I'd handle I never done that uh, you know here's what I'd say okay while I agree that a superior force definitely has the advantage in most situations I do feel tactics have to be a huge part when you're doing a large-scale battle. If you really, I mean, assuming you're letting your players be part of that planning process. I mean, obviously, if they're lower level, they probably aren't. But maybe they are on a smaller scale on a squadron level. But if they are playing as part of the, you know, team of strategists... Uh, you know, they can definitely their history's filled with smaller forces overcoming larger ones using good tactics. I mean, just look at the okay, I'm gonna jump into my wayback machine here with Mr. Peabody, but uh look at the Battle of Salome, in which uh you had a much smaller Greek navy and they were soundly defeated. Uh mm-hmm. they I mean, I'm sorry, they soundly defeated uh an overwhelming Persian force. And the mm-hmm. way they did it was and this happened after the whole, you know, Sparta. But uh it happened afterwards because they they tricked Xerxes into sending his uh, huge navy into the Straits of Salome. Mm-hmm. And within it's a that bottleneck straits, right there. Yeah, they yeah. bottlenecked them and it was their own size of their fleet that made them, you know, hindered their movements. They couldn't organize. And they became easy pickings to the smaller Greek armada that came in in a straight line right into their disorganized ranks. And 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 this is history. It's not, you know, a book or a movie. They really did win this way. Uh you have in China the Battle of Red Cliffs, which yep. by the way, Red Cliff is a great movie. Uh, but you had Jun Lion and Zhao Yu fighting for Liu Bai. <laughs> but yeah, in a similar deal, uh, they basically were up against uh, the Han Dynasty's great battle fleet. And mm-hmm. this fleet of ships were so close that they were able to use simple fire to set the entire fleet on fire. And yeah. uh, of course, you can go more. You can go the I Battle even of Agincourt. A third naval battle even in a little bit more in recent history where you knew the enemy was out there. You just didn't know where Oh battle yeah, Mid- the battle of Midway mm-hmm. when that happened in early 1942. I mean, yeah, that- well, look at Gettysburg. Gettysburg yeah. was another one. Pickett's I mean, charge got stopped because right. the rep, uh, they could, yeah, the union took the Hills. I mean, you had a point like when I was saying Midway where you had a force, you knew that was out there and you had very, little in the way of def- defending what you had because most of your battleships were sunk <laughs> in the previous mm. six months. So a lot of it has to do with in- intelligence and getting that information and taking advantage of using the element of surprise. So that was where, in that case, it was an element of surprise too. use against a, I would say a, 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 a marginally superior force coming up against one that was slightly overmatched. So you can oh, put definitely. that into your game. Maybe you have a situation to where you knew the enemy was out there. There's all these orcs, gnolls, and, or- and ogres, but you just don't know where. But if you find them, if you send your re- your little reconnaissance force, which could be the player characters, out to find them, you can help them direct the battle, you know, set up the forces and hit them where it hurts the most. 
And, you know, I'll add one more thing. Uh, and that's because I know Matt was saying that he, you know, he's right. The, the, the players are the heroes. But you mm-hmm. know what? The heroes don't always win the, the battle. They might right. win the war, but they don't always win the battle. And, and you know, a lot of times I hear people, one of the biggest complaints I hear about the module uh, assault on area of the slave lords is uh, that, oh, wait, that was, uh, no, you know what? I'm sorry. It's not that one. It's the other slave lords one where you start out uh, with nothing. As their, Oh, no, that's uh, A3. Yeah. 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 I know what you're talking about. Right. It's so, module you know, A3, though, but yeah, yeah. Well, what a great segue, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, you're not railroaded. Uh, don't, you know, don't as a GM, I wouldn't say, you know, the the whole purpose is that they got to lose so I can segue them into this. I'm just saying if they lose, what a great segue into something like that. Now they're not railroaded and they can enjoy the module. Yeah. And also it's another way to where, like you said, they might lose the battle, but they might not win the war. It's like, um, how they say, uh, in like, in uh, the the best, usually the best act of a three act play is the is the middle ones act mm-hmm. two because that's where all the tension and the the suspense is. I mean, mm-hmm. Star Wars trilogy yeah. probably by far Empire Strikes Back to the most fans exactly. is the most suspenseful of all the three of the films because that was when the Empire was striking back. So exactly, they weren't taking the snar- field on Hoff. Right. You might have a scenario like that in your campaign where you have, you know, you've won that first battle, but you're now the enemy is striking back. And yes, you're going to take a few, you know, blows to the, to the chin here, but you're, you're down, but you're not out. That's where exactly. the suspense builds. And you're, and that's what we should do as good DMs to give your players, give them a little bit of suspense, kind of put them on the edge there, make them think that, hey, this could go. We're the, the you know, the, the campaign, the adventure is like on the razor's edge here. Right. And, you know, just because, you know, there obviously there are even more examples of where superior forces won. But the way I would treat it is simply, you know, like you would if you if you had your players run into a band of orcs, mm-hmm. you know, they may win, they may lose. It's all really going to come down to their play. But if they do lose, that doesn't mean they can't be the heroes. Right. 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 I think the key is if you know that a bat, the players are going to lose, the group side that the players are on are going to lose a massive battle or something make it feel like the players had a chance to win. Well, and and that's my point. You wouldn't know because you would treat it just like any other encounter. Right. It's all going to come down to their tactics and their roles. As the GM, you wouldn't know. Right. Right. And and keep in mind that, you know, losing doesn't necessarily mean the player characters all dying. There might be a certain objective that the enemy gets and that's their quote-unquote victory condition. So Right. And as the GM, it's your job to take whatever outcome is and spin it into an interesting segue. And as the player's part, it's their duty to take no matter what the outcome is and roll with it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, all right. I guess no one else has anything to add on that. Let's go to the third uh, or the next question here. Uh, Our email it's from Andrew or Outlander 78. 
says, hi guys, I'm trying to add a series of crypts to my game and I'm stumped how to make them more interesting. I would like to hear your ideas on what you can put in a crypt other than undead coffins, treasure, and simple traps, darts, poison needles, etc., to make them exciting and interesting. I would especially like to hear what each of you considers your favorite puzzle from past games. Uh, he says, full disclosure, I am sending this to RFI and Save or Die, so I would like to hear all of your ideas. Cheers from Andrew. Well, um, any of you guys got some ideas how to make a crypt more interesting besides the standard run of the mill yeah. stuff? Well, I had a quick question when I, you know, now when he says besides coffins, when is he talking like a mausoleum or is he talking, you know, I don't know, just an underground without coffins in it? Uh, um, I'm kind of picturing kind of a tomb of horrors kind of thing. Right. You know? It's okay. Like so the an dun- overall the dungeon's kind of dungeon, kind of like lots of undead. It's a crypt of some, some undead bad dude. Maybe. Right. Yeah, it's like or some- it could be just a part of a larger dungeon. Right. Well, I had this kind of interesting thought. It went uh, two ways, actually. Uh, no, I just dropped a, a cap. Uh, but you could have, what about one, uh, uh, you know, uh, you could have, I mean, I guess if, if it was one room within the crypt and it was like a mausoleum and you didn't want to have undead in there, uh, what about a golem? Mm-hmm. And two, if if it's the crypt of a holy person, evil or good, I suppose, remember, what about an Aliex? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, yeah. you have disturbed the tomb of, or the crypt of somebody who's favored by the gods. And what do you find inside? Oh, you see yourself. Yeah. 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 Or that's a good twist. Yeah. Or what about you go to uh, explore this crypt and then you find the doors already open. You find the skeletons already smashed. There's another party already halfway through it. <laughs> oh, there you oh, go. Oh, that's nice. I like that. Because you're not the first to know about this. I'm sure there's other adventurers as well, so why don't adventuring parties actually run into each other when kicking and the door and leaving? that room? adventuring party, just for for the for the heck of it, is the opposing party trying to keep the the um, the mummy rising from his crypt and taking over the land. Maybe they're trying to help him, and you're there trying to stop him. Right. Ooh. Or maybe your paladin has a plus five sword, Avenger, and their paladin wants it. Aha. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> no, I'm just joking on that one. But, you know, well, he might be an anti-paladin, I suppose. Yeah, it could happen. Or he could know. be like, I need this sword to complete my mission. My, I'm on a holy mission, so therefore you must give it to me. Oh, you That's won't. right. Your god is obviously more power, you know, more important than his god. Yeah, my god's bigger than your god, so you hand it over, and then, so you can just have that type of conflict. Also, think about not every crypt is sealed up, so why couldn't you also just have like woodland creatures living in it? I was just kind of, I was thinking of something like that. There was an adventure for Hackmaster called Slaughterhouse Indigo, where this house. <clears throat> is because you're kind of on the woodland thing. Yeah. This house was for some, for some gnomes, you know, and this gnome, uh, this, this gnome clan. And, um, the house was 
grown from a seed. It was the house was basically like a tree fashioned into like a house or a large um, mansion. But somehow undead got into it, touched the heart of the house, and the house became undead. So <laughs> yeah. you had this house that you're going through, and it could be a crypt or a mausoleum. Maybe it was fashioned of wood. You know, maybe yeah. it was for the Grand Druid. And maybe his, it's a big mimic. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would really stink. Uh, but maybe you could fashion a, a crypt or a mansion or something that was of the Grand Druid, but somewhere along the time, a level life-draining creature like a vampire or a specter touched the heart of the house and turned it into an undead house. Now that would be a heck of a twist on a crypt. Right. <laughs> yeah. So you got parts of the house attacking you, you know, you doors are... slamming on your head. You know, the, well, maybe you the... know what? I always think are underused. What about fungus? Oh yeah. 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 There There's go. so much. Uh, when I did the tower of Gygax, uh, my room for the tower of Gygax, I decided to focus entirely on fungus. So I called it the twilight garden. It was the garden for yeah. the Tower of Gygax. And I went through, I had phycomids, I had yellow mold, I had right. yellow creepers, uh, green slime, uh, just so much. Uh, oh, gaseous spores. Crypt dedicated the Jubilix, the demon of slime. Yeah, but you know what? If you've got a crypt, yeah. you know. It's just going to naturally yeah, grow. It's, it, it's it gets a little Stuff's damp. It's going to start growing in there. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it not All crypts are not just stone and dust. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, they have lizard men in there as well. Why don't right. they go? Oh, yeah. If maybe, the crypt's they, in a mountain, maybe yeah. a bear wandered in. Maybe yeah. a... Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, and incidentally, I'd have to say my favorite uh, puzzle came from Castle Amber. It would have been the I, – I, I always enjoyed the magical letter square where yes. you had to step on certain tiles that spelled out a name. Yeah. I, I think my favorite was out of – I think it was Ghost Tower of Inverness. There's like oh, a section it where it's like a – there's like a chess board set up. The, 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 the room was set up like a chess board. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and you had to step on specific squares, otherwise you got a nice little shock. Yeah. I always liked that one. Yeah. Hmm. And then, of course, there was, you know, uh, Tomb of Horrors with its uh, uh, <laughs> stick your hand in and you die. Oh, uh, yeah. What was that? The, the uh, green demon face. Yes. Yeah, yeah and yeah. inside its mouth is uh, is a uh, – I just mind blanked on what it's called. It's it's basically a little black a hole. Sphere of Annihilation, it's I sphere think. Sphere of Annihilation. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Let's stick oh, my hand in. Have no more hand. What? <laughs> yeah, Tomb yeah. of Horrors was basically a thousand and one ways to die. To die, a D and D edition. This, yes, yeah, best adventure ever. Yes. <laughs> All right, who wants to take the next one? Okay, I'll do the next one here. Next one is from Brian Howard of Buffalo, New York. Hey guys, love the show. Just have a quick question about playing D&D on a tablet, and if you're aware of any character sheet apps or an easy-to-use character sheet online that could be used on a tablet for original Dungeons & Dragons. Thanks for all your good work, and please keep it up. Hmm. Bad Irishman. Yeah. 
Yep. Yeah, but that's exactly what I was going to say. Bad Irishman. Life. He but has everything. He has the PDFs and his are available. They are, but yeah. hmm, on a tablet though, are they fillable? As long as you got the correct PDF reader. Okay. Adobe Acrobat or Foxit Pro or whatever. Okay. Yeah, because I've never actually tried that before. Yeah. I, but he says tablet. He means like an iPad, not a tablet computer because right. where I work, they call tablets computers as well. So yeah, those are those computers you can fold over and use the pen with. So Right. Yes. And I assume he also doesn't mean like a stone tablet. Yeah, I would hope not. <laughs> yes. He's really old school. He's writing on a stylus made and has wax. Right. <laughs> he pulls out the parchment. He's good. Yes. Does he come down off a mountain? Yes. <laughs> and he drops it. No, no that's only when Ow. one of the characters dies. You have to actually smash the tablet of the character sheet. I have these 15. Oh. And it bursts into fire. Ten, ten commandments. <laughs> yes. Next question. Let's go to the next email. Next email. Okay, I'll go ahead and do this one. Sure. Sure. Uh Hey guys, just a question. How do you guys make items seem magical without the players casting detect magic? Also, if there is a magical item in the room that isn't obviously magical, do you give the players a hint that it might be Keith? Uh, if I, I'd simply say Keith, in my game, magic items tend to be rare, and so they have legends around them. And most common people will hear of some of these legends, and there's a chance... I usually give them a percentile chance or, or perhaps even base it off of their intelligence or wisdom that by its very appearance or inscription, they may say, hey, you know what? That looks like the sword of King Belvoir of Furiandi, with which he single-handedly held back a horde of the undead. Maybe it's magic. Or it could be just a plain broadsword. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> you never know. But it's shiny. Yeah. It's shinier than the other swords. So it's got to be magical. Exactly. And it ain't well, got, well, I won't say that word. Well, it was so like it the one, king. it was like the one joke I threw out way earlier in the show. It's like, you know, there's the hidden shrine of Tomoashan. There's that wooden sword with the obsidian blade. Yeah. It has obsidian chips in it. You wouldn't think that's magical, but it is. It's like a plus one sword plus six Versus gas spores or something ridiculous like that. I mean, you would look at it like, eh, whatever. Right. But it also, it's so different in wooden sword. Why would they have this? It sticks out. Yeah. So just by giving it a description that's like out of the ordinary, even if it's the description is this is a really, really rusted and decrepit sword. And all these others are nice and perfectly shiny and sharp. To be like, huh, one of these things is not like the other. Maybe we should investigate. I don't know. I guess that, that's just one of some of the ways I guess you could do it. Tie some legends around the magic items. And, yeah. Or they're just a little bit more shiny and sprinkly there than right. the others. Uh, yeah, put, whatever. yeah, putting inscriptions on hilts of weapons mm-hmm. are, is always good. Yeah. Or you can have you know, a big can red sometimes... arrow pointing to it that says magic item. That's right. a good way of doing it, too. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? You can also you can also sometimes. I mean, not to you you know you're not trying to fool the players, but sometimes players do get a little bit too. They can't help it. They bring a little bit of that out of character knowledge into the game, and they're like, you know what? I bet that's magical. 
And it's a great way to say, I, you know, in a game that I run, it really is a magical shield this guy found. But the legends around it say that where this warrior walked in battle, his foes fled from him uh, upon seeing the heraldry of his shield. And I actually got the idea from the Black Knight or, uh, well, he went in black armor. It was actually Lancelot. And there's an actual tale uh, if you go back and and basically apparently Lancelot would go to tournaments and nobody would would joust with him because he was so good. So he started taking to going incognito uh, so that people would joust with him. Mm. So I went kind of the other way around. I said, okay, well, this heraldry, people ran from it. And the player immediately said, it must have a fear spell on it. That or the guy holding it was really deadly and had a very good reputation. So, you know, it's one of those things where it it actually was a magical shield. It didn't have fear on it. But but that's where I believe the players have to start being a little more clever on their own end, because the GM is not going to hand spoon, you know, hand feed everything to them just because people run from it doesn't mean that it has fear cast on it. So you can kind of, you can, you, I guess what I'm saying is you can give the players the idea of a magic item with description, but you can, you can also, you know, but they still have to work for it. Mm. Okay. Word. Sure. Next That's, one, I guess, or yeah. anybody else got anything on this? No. Moving right okay. along. All right. Moving right along. Um, I'll, I guess I'll read it. Go ahead. Um, it's from Kurt. Hello, Kurt. I recently found your podcast. No, I recently found your podcast. I've been going through from the start and loving it. In one of the first five to ten episodes, Jason mentioned that he had a whiteboard system for tracking how combat plays out with segments. (laughs) I would love to take a look at it and see if I could incorporate it into my own game. Where can I find it? Thanks. I have no idea. Vince? It's on our website. Uh, Jason recently posted the link on Gygax Magazine on Facebook. Oh, okay. Uh, it's still on our website. Matt can dig it up yeah. and throw the show notes for him so we could see it. Oh, there you go. There you have it. Uh, last one. Who wants it? I'll go ahead and take it. Okay. Our last one here is from Stevie. I am a new listener and started listening at 101 and then jumped back to listen to the old shows and then listening through those great i may add i was wondering if the shows if the shows have been done dedicated to just a simple plain fighter i know it's pretty straightforward class but you guys have to have some ideas how to make it better or more interesting i don't think we've actually done just a fighter no we haven't no i haven't you know what we should yeah because we've hit subclasses of fighter and the paladin and then the knights and cavaliers, but no, we've never actually just talked fighter. Done just the fighter. No, the underappreciated fighter. And then yes. technically, I mean, to be precise, is one of my favorite classes. Mine too. Yeah. Mine and the cleric, two of my favorites. You know, it's it's a class that's really versatile too in how you play it because I you, I don't allow cavaliers in my game, but my theory is essentially I tell players who want to play knights, I say play a fighter and be a knight. Yeah. Good idea. Yeah. Yeah, so you know what? Maybe we'll do a show. What do you think, Vince? No. Okay, then. <laughs> Sorry, Stevie. <laughs> uh, 
kidding. Yeah, of course we could spend some time on our. I don't know about a whole show. It'd probably be a segment, but uh, yeah, well, we, we can cover it. Yeah, I, if we maybe an anecdote or two. Yeah, and I'm sure there's stuff in Dragon that were they other offshoots of adding to a fighter that existed before they started adding the actual uh, other classes that'll be probably rather the fighting man. The fighting it's the man. The original fighting man. Yes. <laughs> Gabe, the fighting man. <laughs> the fighter. I don't know. I just like that name for it. We know. Okay. I guess this is going to wrap things up then. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to say keep it original, keep it old school. And, uh, oh, yeah. Point of interest, Nick. You'll yes. be interested in this. In December, mm-hmm. be four years for us. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. You're right. Four years. Four years will be because you were in the very first five. So, and then we got Matt. We wrote Matt in after that. So, yep, it is four years. Twenty-seven was my first. And then I roped Chad in. (laughs) (laughs) What is that? Four years. That's the aluminum year. Is it? I expect some gifts, guys. Let's go. Come on. All right. Fifty experience points. That's more than you get normally. So we haven't jumped the shark. That's good. Not yet, at least. Yet. Yeah. Or, you know, jump the boule. Next week. We're talking about wrestling. Oh, here we go. Well, actually, I was second row at SmackDown this past oh, week. Oh, here we go. <laughs> right behind That's... the announcers all over television. Really? Yeah. Um, called in a favor. Got amazing seats. I was, whenever they did a cutaway to Cole and JBL on SmackDown, I'm directly behind JBL. Is this coming up Friday? Or? Uh, this past Friday on the uh, 19th. Oh, let's see. That would have been, yeah. It aired on September 20th. I missed it. Oh, well. Yeah. So we're, so uh, uh, what are we going to do for four years? Are we going to do the classic flashback episode? No, no. We won't do anything until five years, actually. Yeah. Okay. So stay tuned next week when Nick jumps over a shark in a leather jacket. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Our and creature. I get thrown off a cliff by an eagle. Yes. And Matt will be thrown in a wrestling ring and body slammed by Mark Henry. Oh. Ow. Stand Ow. there like Vince McMahon does. Uh. <laughs> keep it original. Keep it old school. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night. Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with d20radio.com. You can visit us at rfipodcast.com or contact us on our forums at osrgaming.org or even by calling us at 570-865-4210. This podcast is produced for entertainment purposes only. All other uses are prohibited. And remember, if your magic missile spell doesn't automatically hit, you're playing the wrong edition. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Roll for Initiative. 